DiscerningHearts.com presents Inside the Pages, insights from today's most compelling authors. I'm your host, Chris McGregor, and I'm delighted to be joined by Joseph Pierce, who is the author of The Quest for Shakespeare and Through Shakespeare's Eyes. He's the editor of the Ignatius Critical Edition series, which provides Western classics with academic commentary for use at the high school and college level. His other books include literary biographies of Oscar Wilde, J.R.R. Tolkien, C.S. Lewis, G.K. Chesterton, and Alexander Solzhenitsyn. With Joseph Pierce, we go inside the pages of Shakespeare on Love, Seeing the Catholic Presence in Romeo and Juliet, published by Ignatius Press. Joseph, thank you so much for joining me. Oh, you're welcome. It's always my pleasure. Shakespeare on Love, Seeing the Catholic Presence in Romeo and Juliet. It is outstanding. Thank you so much for bringing this to us. Well, thank you. It's my pleasure, as I say, that I was uh, the victim of, of being taught Romeo and Juliet badly when I was a teenager. And I know that that crime is being repeated in, in high schools up and down the country, both sides of the Atlantic. And so uh, it's a book I think that's needed. There are a couple that, as you point out, probably are considered maybe the two great lovers, the, the, the great love story. But yet that is really a misnomer because when you look at their story, there's nothing truly great about it, is there, Joseph? No, there's nothing truly great about it except the magnitude of the tragedy that's caused by it. But the key thing is, you know, is that it's not really a love story in the sense that it's not really love. And that's the whole point, I think, that Shakespeare's trying to make, is that, that, that love truly understood is rational. It's not about feeling, it's about doing. In other words, that love as a Christian understands it, and, and let's not forget that Shakespeare is a believing Catholic, that love is a commandment ultimately, a commandment to act. I mean, the two great commandments of Christ is that we love the Lord our God and that we love our neighbor. Now, that's, that's, that's a commandment to act. What that actually means, again, the words given to us by Christ, no greater love, says Christ, than that one lays down his life for his friends. And ultimately, because of the commandment to love our enemies, to lay down our lives for our enemies also. So basically, love is about giving ourselves self-sacrificially to the other. And it's not about, it's not about feeling, it's about doing. And really, I think what Shakespeare is doing in Romeo and Juliet is showing us the danger of allowing our hearts to run away with our heads. In other words, to allow our feelings to get the better of us and that we forget virtue, we forget wisdom, we forget reason in, in our headlong rush to gratify our feelings towards another. And I think that's the key ingredient of the play, it's a cautionary tale. And uh, unfortunately, of course, we live in such ignorant days that, that the, the, the whole message is often lost. Well, what I really appreciated in the book is that you brought forward that the play, Romeo and Juliet, could indeed be considered a response to other cultural offerings that were given at the time in plays and in poetry. And I didn't appreciate that, really, Joseph, that in some ways, Shakespeare wrote a number of his plays in response to other popular works of that time. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, most of Shakespeare's plays actually are not, uh, shall we say, the, the idea or the plot are not original to him. He takes pre-existing ideas, pre-existing po poems or plays, 
and does his own thing with them. And of course, the genius is in what he does with them. In this case, he takes a, an earlier poem published about uh, 30 years earlier, which is actually very anti-Catholic, turns it around that the only voice of wisdom, albeit in a flawed character, Friar Lawrence, the only words of wisdom in the play are actually being uttered by the Catholic religious character. And of course, those words are not heeded by the lovers, and that's the problem. I have to mention two of my favorite books. They've changed how I look at not only Shakespeare, but how I look at all the literary work. And of course, it's your two books, The Quest for Shakespeare and Through Shakespeare's Eyes. So for anybody out there who is saying, well, what is this conversation we're having about Shakespeare being a Catholic? I highly suggest you read those first, because this really does change how we look at Shakespeare, but also how Shakespeare can speak to us in our day. Absolutely, and, and, and thanks for mentioning those two books, because of course Shakespeare on Love, the new book, is, is, is built on those foundations, that the quest for Shakespeare gave the biographical and historical documentary evidence for Shakespeare's Catholicism, and through Shakespeare's eyes gave the textual evidence for three of his plays, um, The Merchant of Venice, King Lear, and Hamlet. With Shakespeare on Love, I wanted to address the issue of Romeo and Juliet, because it's such a misunderstood play, where you know, modern with their romantic reading of the play think that the, the love between the Romeo and Juliet is something beautiful and pure and any problems in the play are caused by other people not by them which is not the way that Shakespeare sees it and as, as the title of my second book uh, suggests we have to see the play through Shakespeare's eyes and there's two very singular facts about Shakespeare's eyes one of the eyes of a Catholic so therefore he's seeing love as a Catholic sees and understands love. And the other is that at the time he's writing Romeo and Juliet in around 1597, he's actually himself the father of uh, a daughter about the same age as Juliet. In fact, he makes Juliet considerably younger in his play than, than she is in the source, about three years younger. She's about 16 or so in the source. He makes her 13, which is the same age as his own daughter. So he's not only writing as a, a Catholic, he's writing as a Catholic parent. And so to, to, to perceive that, that somehow other Shakespeare is endorsing this headlong, heedless and headless rush to oblivion, to suicide, is absurd. Yeah, I, you mentioned the virtues, and I think that's so important in this, because Throughout this whole book, it's not just the the story of Romeo and Juliet's poor choices. It's the poor choices that are made by all those who are guiding them, whether it is you bring to us Friar Lawrence or the nurse or even the father who all have first blush, they make the right guidance choices for them, but then they don't follow through in the end. They don't right. follow through on those. And that's causes the kids, in particular Juliet, just to tumble down into a spiral of sadness. Yeah, the poor girl. I mean, we do, we do, we do have to feel sorry for her, and I think we're meant to feel sorry for her. Then Shakespeare's writing as the father of a daughter of about her age. So, he, you know, he, he, of course, he's sympathetic. The point is that she's left alone. There are certain times, there's a rather palpable point in the play where quite clearly... Juliet wants to explain to her parents, who are both there, that she can't possibly marry because she's already married to Romeo. It's clearly this is the point at which she would have blurted out 
however fearfully and tearfully, that she'd already done this thing by marrying Romeo and therefore couldn't possibly go ahead with the marriage that her father had planned. But the sad thing is that she's not allowed to get a word in edgeways. Every time she tries to speak, he shouts her down, he threatens her, he cajoles her, he threatens to throw her out reduces her to, to basically a, a nervous wreck of tears. And then when he storms off, she tries to talk to her mother. And her mother says, don't talk to me. You've heard what your father says. And her mother leaves. So she, this poor girl is in this crisis in which she has no one to turn to because she has parents that don't care about her. And, and so, yes, there's a, there's a tragedy here. It's a tragedy of, of, if you like, immature young people. And we do need to bear in mind also, by the way, that Shakespeare makes the age difference between Romeo and Juliet much larger mm-hmm. than it is in the source. So Romeo, in modern terminology, or perhaps not so modern terminology, but post-Shakespeare, now Romeo is a cad. He's not a good man. He rushes headlong from one false love to another. Uh, he seduces this, this naive young girl. So he's a cad. But she's naive, and she has no guidance from her parents or from her elders. And as you say, he, although Friar Lawrence has the right doctrine, and he, he, he tells them that you know, violent delights have violent ends and they need to practice prudence and temperance. Nonetheless, in an act of reckless, say, lovey-doveyness, he consents to marry them without the, the, uh, the consent or even the knowledge of their parents in the naive and foolish hope that this will somehow bring peace between the two warring parties. And, you know, and the best you can say about that is that it, it's a, a reckless naivete. But, you know, but again, you know, he's still probably the most sympathetic character in the whole play because, first of all, He's the one that conveys the Christian wisdom that's not heeded, and we know that if it was heeded, the tragedy would not have happened. And he also, having made his mistake, and makes full confession before the prince, uh, and is willing to, to, you know, to be killed, uh, if, the, if that's the prince's wish, for his, his part in the tragedy. And the prince responds, which I think is the response of Shakespeare, and should be our response. He's a flawed individual. He makes a very, very bad mistake, but he repents of it and is forgiven. Yeah, it's important that we realize that what he did, we have to learn from his mistake and not to encourage others to act as he did in the present day. We're supposed to learn from those type of tales, not say, oh, that's the behavior we should engage in, in support Absolutely. of unrequited love. Yeah, I mean, the whole point of Shakespeare's moral in, in the unfolding of the story and in, and in its ending, its tragic ending, beyond the tragic ending, the silver lining of the bringing of peace and resolution from the mistakes being made, that, that it's a cautionary tale. He's telling us that we have to always, just, just as the Catholic Church has always insisted, that you cannot separate faith from reason. And if you do try to separate faith from reason, you either get irrational faith, which is heresy, or faithless reason, which is ultimately rationally nonsense, such as the neo-atheists, for instance. But you, so you can't separate faith and reason, but you also cannot separate love and reason. The, the love itself has to be subject to reason. It has to be rational. In Dante's Divine Comedy, the uh, Paolo and Francesca, who are very much a parallel figures in Dante's Inferno to, to, to Romeo and Juliet, I mean, Dante says that basically they surrendered, the, the, the souls of the lustful surrendered reason for appetite. In other words, they followed their appetites instead of their reason. And that's exactly what Romeo and Juliet do. They follow their passions and their feelings instead of following that which they know to be right, that which they know to be virtuous, that which they know to be true because it's taught by 
Holy Mother Church. So it's a cautionary tale, and we're meant to learn from the cautionary tale. Now, to completely invert and pervert the meaning, but somehow making Roman Juliet beautiful and their love wonderful and pure, and if there's any problem at all, it's with with, with the older generation, is completely to miss to, uh, to miss to, to miss Shakespeare's point. And that really is that my point in writing the book is that we get Shakespeare's point and don't miss it. Yeah, I think today's audience, of course, were influenced. We've talked about this before. They're influenced by modern media interpretation of these events. So we see movies that have a a peer relationship, as in Claire Danes and Leonardo DiCaprio or Olivia Hussey, and I I forget who her co-star was in the movie versions. But then also we we see films like West Side Story, which if it seems to have a Romeo Juliet esque type of yes. motif to it, but that that is nothing like the play, really. No, no, absolutely. It, that does turn it around. It might be beautiful in some way in its, in its own sense as a work of art, but West Side Story has obviously taken Romeo and Juliet as the storyline. I mean, basically, it's doing with Romeo and Juliet what, what Shakespeare does with the original uh, poem about the story of Romeo and Juliet. It's, it's taking and doing things with it, but what it does with it, of course, in West Side Story is that the, the, the love between the, the boy and the girl is for the man and the woman is pure, and it's about bringing love to the warring parties, uh, and they're not listened to, so therefore they're, they're, their love is pure. And that is really a manifestation of the misreading of Romeo and Juliet. And it may well be possible, of course, when you divorce the story, uh, Shakespeare's story, to, to, to put a different spin, and that different spin might be believable. It is possible that two people can have a pure love for each other that transcends sectarian or racial divisions. Uh, and that's beautiful. But that's not what Shakespeare's saying in the story. Shakespeare's saying in the story that Romeo and Juliet are following their passions to the exclusion of their morality with this disastrous consequences, and the hatred of the parents for their neighbours ha- contributes to the problem. You know, it's not, it's not either or, it's both and. And, and, and let's get one thing straight here. At its deepest level, Romeo and Juliet can be seen as a mystical meditation on, two, on the two great commandments of Christ. Mm-hmm. Because the first commandment is that we love the Lord our God. Well, Romeo and Juliet's big crime is that they turn each other into gods. They, de- they, they, deify, they deify the other, they worship the other. And Romeo says... That heaven is here where Juliet is. In other words, you know, that all he wants is to be eternally present with her, not eternally present with God. This is idolatry. It's the worship of false gods, and it's the denial of the love of the Lord thy God. So the, in one sense, the, the love between Rome and Juliet is a, is a blasphemous love. It's a denial of the, the great commandment to love the Lord our God. But the other thing that's going on in the play, of course, is, that, is, is the denial of the other commandment to love our neighbor, because the Capulets and Montagues, as neighbors, hate each other. So you have the denial of those two great commandments and the disaster that's caused by that denial. And there's this, so the corruption of virtue throughout this entire play, the corruption of it and the, the lack of it. I mean, that in Romeo is probably the worst of them all. I hate to say that, but I, and, and you can't just slough it off because he's this young guy, because his lack of prudence, his lack of temperance, his, his disdain for chastity, I mean, it just... He's not a hero. Absolutely not. You know, and again, we need to bear in mind, it's worth reiterating, that Shakespeare makes him older in his play than he is in the source and makes Juliet younger. In other words, he, he increases the gap between them so that Romeo becomes more responsible for his actions and more responsible for the disaster 
that his actions bring about, particularly the disaster they bring about in the in the life of this young girl, this 13-year-old who, whom he seduces. So, no, I agree. Romeo is a cad. Every single line that he utters is, is basically the, feel, the pursuit of his own gratification, his own feelings, a complete absence and negation and denial of reason and conventional morality and the teaching of the church. And, you know, in the absence of those things and the absence of, of being willing to listen to that wisdom and to follow that virtue, the outcome it really is inevitable. That if you won't follow the path of wisdom, if you won't live a life of virtue, you're doomed to destruction. And the sad thing, of course, is that you bring others down with you, and that's exactly what happens. I love in the beginning you bring forward a number of other examples of what the world has considered the great love stories or the great couples. And one of them that has always jumped out that is so close to my heart is Odysseus and Penelope. From oh, yeah. oh my gosh, I love yeah. Penelope because she just she stays faithful. There's a faithfulness and again that woman of virtue to her guy who is trying to make it home just trying to get to her. This conflict between true love, that love which is rational and is in obedience to reason and to virtue, has been in conflict with the other love, which is about self-gratification and pursuing our feelings and wanting to feel good. I mean, going back right to the beginning, so we have Homer, and we have Homer giving us in Penelope, you're right, she, she has faith, but also she has fortitude, you know? Mm-hmm. She's, she's a very, very strong character. She doesn't necessarily have to say an awful lot or be seen that often, but every time she appears, Peers. She is uh, um, a voice of strength and of solidness, solidity. She, she's one of the strongest characters in literature, even though she has what might be considered a bit part. Of course, it isn't a bit part because it's a powerful silence. Without her presence, the, the Odyssey crumbles. It falls to pieces. She, her love, her fidelity uh, is the cement, if you like, that holds the whole fabric of the Odyssey together. And then against that, however, Virgil shows us you know, in the relationship between Dido and Aeneas, how both of them forget their duty and their responsibility to their people, to their family, to their God, in, in, order, in, in order to pursue an obsessive relationship with each other. And in the end, of course, Aeneas does what he has to do, which is to fulfill his destiny and to do what the gods demand of him. He has, even has miraculous, you know, visions, apparitions to... to, to testify that this is what he has to do. And Dido, uh, on the other hand, pursues her feelings recklessly unto her own suicide and also, therefore, to, to, uh, to, to cause great harm and suffering to all of her people. So, you know, complete unwillingness subject herself and her passions and her feelings to her responsibilities. So, you know, we see this going right back through literature. We say, say we see it in Dante with Paolo and Francesca. And so Shakespeare is, is part of a living tradition here um, that, that, of course, continues on to our own day. You know, I think it, it's so important, the work that you provide for us, Joseph, because in today's world, we're not trained to critically look at literature, movies, music, all these different venues, the media that are conveying a message critically in the with the eye of virtue so that we can learn something. Sometimes we, we, we sit down and we're either reading a book or we're watching a movie and we get swept away with the emotion and we don't allow virtue to teach us the lesson contained in that particular piece and we are led astray. And we're just not taught that way 
anymore in our schools or in our other or our higher academic halls. Yeah, the ironic thing is, Chris, that we live in an age that has forgotten how to reason. You know, it's the so-called age of reason that's turned its back on religion. But actually what it's done is become narcissistically self-centered. And it's all about me and my feelings. So therefore we judge everything about how it affects me and my feelings. And therefore that, that severs us from an engagement with reality, with engagement with the other beyond ourselves. And one of the great things about love, properly understood, rational love, it's about giving ourselves to the other. In other words, there's something essentially objective about it. It's not subjective. It's not about my feelings. It's about I have to give myself to the other, to the beloved, whoever that be, whether, whether it's my children, whether it's a, a, a parental love, or whether it's a spousal love towards my, towards my wife, or a, a, a love towards my parents, or a love towards my neighbor, or a love towards my enemy. You know, and true love really is, sh- is shown when it doesn't feel good. You know, when I act in a loving way towards an enemy, because that's what I need to do, because that's what love is, that's true love. You know, what, what Christ says about rewards, well, you know, we, we can all do good things if it makes us feel good. But the real virtue is doing a good thing where it doesn't make us feel good. Mm-hmm. Have we come to a point where we live in an era where Eros runs amok, that there's a lack of balance between the other forms of love? Absolutely. And, and, you know, and I think that one thing that, that, that Shakespeare shows us in Romeo and Juliet is that Eros is not true love. In other words, that Eros basically is a feeling that we have. You know, that's why you know, Eros is blind, uh, mm-hmm. and Eros shoots uh, his darts at random. It's, it's blind chance. Um, and blind chance is not rational. And I think one of the big things in Romeo and Juliet is the fact that, you know, Romeo refers to his love, his erotic love, as a madness. He calls it so himself. It's not someone else judging him. He confesses that, his, that love is a madness. Uh, and Juliet conf- confesses that love is a blindness. So you know, we have the, the protagonist themselves saying, look, I'm mad and I'm blind. Mm-hmm. Because the, the, the love that Cupid, the love that Eros offers, is blind. And ultimately, because it's a denial of reason, it's mad. Mm-hmm. Well, before we, we leave this discussion, I have to say the appendix of the book is probably worthwhile as a work all in itself, and that's the relationship between Shakespeare and St. Robert Southwell, who was a Jesuit poet and martyr, and who plays kind of a, a role here in this work, doesn't he? Yeah, I mean, one thing I'm finding very exciting, and I just wish I had more time to pursue it uh, more diligently, uh, is the more I read Shakespeare, the more that his relationship with Robert Subtle uh, emerges. That uh, there's, there's references to Subtle's own poetry, there's references to Subtle's own prose, there's references to Subtle's own example and his death as a martyr. And except biographical evidence shows that... that, that um, Shakespeare and Subtle almost certainly knew each other and probably knew each other well because of the circumstances of where and when they were living. So I, I, I find it fascinating. that I, I read, I read some, some Robert Subtle's poetry and see lines in it that remind me of lines in Shakespeare. I, I'd really like to sort of go through methodically all of Shakespeare's plays and see you know, other, other instances because I'm sure they keep leaping out at me when I'm not looking for them. Now, it may be that uh, there's an element of 
of grace involved there, and it's not just coincidence, as it were, but, but I'm, I'm convinced there's much more that all I've done so far in looking at the connections between Shakespeare and this Jesuit martyr uh, is scratching the surface, and I'm very, very excited. I mean, I've, I've only looked at a handful of uh, The Merchant of Venice, King Lear, and Romeo and Juliet for, for examples of... Uh, of Robert Southall's influence, but I'm I'm sure and convinced it's it's elsewhere. And that one of my one of my uh, well one one of my desires for the future in between other projects is is to have time to return to Shakespeare and and, and continue to make these these very exciting discoveries. What can we say about the deaths found in these literary characters? And is there the possibility of a happy ending in Romeo and Juliet? Well, I think there are two questions here. Uh, one is uh, easier to answer: that there is a happy ending in the sense that, for the for the wider world, for the world of Verona, the world at large, if you like, that we can learn from the mistakes of others. We can learn from our own mistakes. We can learn from the extent that we begin to understand that our own mistakes have caused the mistakes of others and therefore come to, first of all, repentance and then uh, a growth in virtue. And that appears to be the situation that the Capulets and Montagues come to, this, uh, this reconciliation, this, this discovery of, of a love between neighbors instead of a hatred between neighbors at the end of the play. So there is a happy ending to Romeo and Juliet. It's not a tragedy in the, in, in, in the darkest sense of the word of, of having nothing but a dismal ending. But the more problematic uh, issue is Romeo and Juliet themselves, because uh, right up to the, the very end, they idolize this sort of deification they've, they've made of each other uh, to, the, to the exclusion of God. I mean, there's horrible things that Romeo in particular says, you know, just before he kills himself. You know, it's a, it's a denial of Christianity, it's a denial of eternal life, it's a denial of God. Uh, you know, someone who dies in that state, you have to be concerned about the their immortal soul. Mm-hmm. I mean, how are they, are Romeo and Juliet, shall we say, now where Paolo and Francesco are in Dante's hell? Mm-hmm. Uh, but of course, and ultimately, you know, it's not for us to judge, even literary characters. <laughs> um, you know, that, that one, one very big thing about Shakespeare, of course, that we see in The, in the Merchant of Venice, is about the quality of mercy, and that mm-hmm. if, if we all demand judgment, none of us will be saved. So, you know, so we can't presume upon the mercy of God, and we don't know if people uh, in Romeo and Juliet's situation in real life, shall we say, go to hell or not. It's not for us to say. But one, there's certainly an element of concern that they might have gone to hell in the way that Romeo and Juliet end their lives. So that's, that's the, the truly tragic aspect of it. But in the, you know, in the broader sense, there is recon- in the wider world, lessons are learned, reconciliation happens, love returns, hatred is quashed, um, and reason uh, reemerges. So in that sense, there's a happy ending. Yet another fascinating work brought to us by your pen, Joseph. Please tell me there are other things in the queue here. <laughs> Actually, I, I seem to be more prolific than ever at the moment. I have I have a book coming out called Beauteous Truth, Faith, Reason, Literature, and Culture for St. Augustine's Press at some point. Yeah, the book's ready, actually. We're waiting for the uh, waiting for the preface from Cardinal Burke, and uh, we don't want to go ahead without the preface, and so now we're sort of uh, beholden to him. So you can perhaps say a prayer that, that he'll have, find the time he's busy scheduled in Rome to, to get them write the preface. But that's ready ready to go. I've also finished uh, last week, or was it the week before? Anyway, in the last week or two, my conversion story, which will be published by the Benedict Press under the title of uh, Race with the Devil, A Journey from Racial Hatred to Rational Love. So I'm excited about that. That's going to be coming out in August. So yes, there's, uh, there's no sign at the moment of my pen being quelled. 
Well, a hearty hallelujah for that. <laughs> Thanks be to God. Oh, yes. Well, Joseph, I thank you so much for joining us, and I look forward to our, our future conversations. My pleasure as always, Chris. God bless you. With Joseph Pierce, we've gone inside the pages of Shakespeare on Love, seeing the Catholic presence in Romeo and Juliet. To learn more about this book or to obtain a copy, go to Ignatius.com, the website for its publisher, Ignatius Press, or you can find it at any fine Catholic bookstore. To hear and or to download this discussion along with many others, go to DiscerningHearts.com. This has been a production of DiscerningHearts.com. I'm your host, Chris McGregor. Join me next time for Inside the Pages, insights from today's most compelling authors.